Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an improv nerd. Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Hey everybody, this is Jimmy Corain, and you're listening to another episode of Improv Nerd, and we have two great sponsors for you today. Our first one is the 7th Annual Dallas Comedy Festival, and the deadline to submit for the 7th Annual Dallas Comedy Festival is fast approaching. So if you're a stand-up, improv team, or sketch troupe, visit DallasComedyFestival.com and submit before December 10th to be part of this year's Bigger and Better Festival. The festival takes place March 23rd through the 26th in warm and sunny Dallas, Texas. Just visit DallasComedyFestival.com for more information. That's DallasComedyFestival.com. We're also sponsored by the Improv Aru Camping Retreat. Now, are you interested in camping under the stars while attending improv workshops with a really supportive, genuine community? Well, if so, check out the Improv Aru Camping Retreat, taking place February 18th through the 21st at the beautiful Camp Bro Ryan, just north of Tampa. This year's retreat features top instructors from IO, the Groundlings, the Magnet, and more. Early registration is open through December 31st for only $100. Visit postdinnerconvo.com slash for more details. That's postdinnerconvo.com slash and you want to start your improv off right in 2016? I can't think of a better way to do it than to sign up for one of my award-winning Artist Low Comedy improv classes here in Chicago. On January 2nd, I'll be offering a one-day workshop, my popular two-person scene tune-up. And starting January 6th, I'll be offering my Level 3 Artist Low Comedy Advanced Performance, where we'll work on long forms, and the last day will culminate into a long-form performance for family and friends. For more information about the two-person scene tune-up or the Level 3 Artist Low Comedy Advanced Performance, all you need to do is go to my website, jimmycorain.com. That's jimmycorain.com. And here we go. It's another episode of Improv Nerd, and we've got a great one for you, but think about it. I want you to go back. Take your calendar out right now. I'll wait. And I want you to look at all the episodes of of 2015. We have not had a bad episode. So when I say we have another great episode, I am not making this up. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not trying to pump things up to get you excited about this episode because I don't have to get you excited about this episode because it's a great one. Enough said. Our guest today is Mike O'Brien. He was a writer for Saturday Night Live and then became a featured player. Uh, Before that, he was uh, an alumni of the Second City Main Stage, and he's also a member of the legendary Herald team at I.O. Chicago and uh, I.O. West, The Reckoning. We talked to him about uh, how he can be uncomfortable in social situations and uh, his experience on Saturday Night Live, how he went from a writer to a featured player, and he talks honestly about that journey. We also talked to him about his new comedy sketch album, Tasty Radio, which is out now and available on iTunes. This episode was recorded at the Second City Training Center in Chicago, and we want to thank all the good people there for making this happen. Before we get to the episode with Mike, you may notice my voice is a little on the horse side. Uh, I do not have a cold. I just had a little bout of rage. It's a combination of a lot of things. Uh, my dad is still in the process of dying. It is the holidays, uh, which I find to be one of the most rageful times of the year, which would be a great song lyric for a Christmas carol. So uh, a couple days ago, I'm sitting in group therapy, and uh, I'm just filled with rage. I'm filled with rage towards my uh, therapist who encourages me to express my my anger. And so uh, they then have a a special exercise that you can do, what they call the bataka, which is basically it's a tennis racket that you hold uh, above your head. And then you start hitting this giant, dirty, carpeted cube and you yell, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Now, if you do this 40 or 50 times like I did, you, you, really, um, you really wreck your, your throat and uh, you, you, you hurt your voice. And so um, this is what you're hearing a couple days after I yelled, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, for 40 or 50 times as I was hitting a tennis racket into a dirty carpeted cube. All right, enough about me. Let's get on to this episode. You are going to love this. It is Mike O'Brien, Pat O'Brien, Michael Patrick O'Brien, Michael O'Brien. 
regardless of what you call him, he's a super talented guy, super nice guy, and I'm so glad we got to do this interview. Here it is. Enjoy it. The Mike O'Brien episode. I'm gonna, is it Pat? Because I've known you as Pat or P.O.B. What would you like me to call you? Pat's great. All okay. my Chicago friends still call me. And you had to change your name because of the union, the after SAG union? Or? No, I, I was Mike O'Brien growing up. And one day when I was uh, 23 and working in the Second City box office, um, I was talking to the other coworker, and she's like, yeah, I just go by my male name. You can just do that. I was like, I'd like to do that. I like Pat. I'm going to be Pat now. And then I met everyone in Chicago Improv and um, immediately was regretting it and wishing I could go back, <laughs> but it was too late. So now I like it as kind of like a, a nickname that my Chicago friends And what about POB? Is that okay to call? I mean, oh, yeah. that's like the people that are in the know, right? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. All my buddies still call me POB. Now, my wife did some research for this, and she found that you lived in Davenport, Iowa, Iowa City, Milwaukee, Verona, Wisconsin, Brookfield, Wisconsin, Peoria, and Chicago. Where did you really grow up? Your, yeah, your your wife has to be fired from the research department. Okay. None of this is <laughs> None true. None of those. Oh. No. no, I am I. I have the same name as a lot of people. Okay. Um, but I grew up in a tiny town called Blissfield, Michigan, mm-hmm. and then moved went to college in Ann Arbor and moved to Chicago right after. And you grew up in an Irish Catholic family. Yes. And you weren't allowed to watch much TV. That's right. But there was two shows you did watch, yeah. and they were? Uh, maybe more than two, but we did Saturday Night Live. We watched the Bears. We watched the Thursday Night NBC lineup, which was uh, Cosby Show, Family Ties, Cheers. Mm-hmm. I think we'd go to bed, and Mom and Dad would watch Night Court after. You weren't allowed to watch Night Court? No. I don't remember if it was... T- getting too late at that point. Okay. They might not have, also, I don't know that they watched, they might have turned porn right on after Chase. Right, we right, don't know, right, but right. it sounded like Night Court, the porn. But, uh, uh, yeah, that was when I was going to bed. But that was about it. I don't remember. And then at lunch you would watch I Love Lucy oh, yeah. in, in the Andy Griffith show. Yeah, yeah, those were on at like 12 and 12.30. And in the summers we would, yeah, we'd uh, uh, watch, I remember we watched them so much in consecutive summers that we got around to the beginning again. Mm-hmm. Like Lucy and Desi and little Ricky had moved to LA and everything and then we looped all the way back to before they'd even had a baby. But what's interesting is that that, that show was way before your time. Yeah. And how, how did that influence your comedy at all? Well, I think Lucy made me love comedy. Like I remember being like, oh, this is really good. And I... The bits I remember from it are a lot about some things I like, like repetition stuff, the vitamin vegemin or whatever right. bit, and those. Um, so maybe subconsciously, and, and just becoming that in Saturday Night Live, making me like comedy and think of myself as a big fan. Do you remember who the first cast was that you really... Yeah, I loved that. Uh, it was Phil Hartman, Dana Carvey, Mike Myers cast, Jan Hooks, Nora Dunn. And then, um, I've, that though I felt like was when our family was getting back into it, and then my real, what I thought was super cool was the Sandler Farley just after that. And I heard Farley was one of the reasons you got into comedy. Yeah, well it's the reason, I'd say it's the biggest reason I signed up for Second City class, was I'd heard he was from here and genuinely didn't know the other thousand people that were from here yet, but that one... Yeah, in college we lo- loved Farley in the house I lived in, and uh, so that was one of the reasons I signed up for Level A. And so, the house you lived in, you were in a fraternity? No, it had that feeling, but I was a- on the rowing team, and there were seven of us in one house, and it was just a mess. But we had a lot of, we would late at night pop in either Eddie Murphy, Raw, or Beverly Hills Ninja, or Tommy Boy, a lot of Farley. And then it, it, you went to University of Michigan, yeah. and, and you wrote, uh, you started your own newspaper called the Anti-Daily. That's right. What was, like, back then, what was considered funny? Well, uh, I would read the Harvard Lampoon that the Borders books got one of. I would get that once a month, and that was a little, I loved it, a little more cerebral. It's funny because I've figured out which friends from writing at SNL I was reading. There's a friend, Eric Kenward, who 
lines up exactly with my time at Michigan, and he was writing for Harvard uh, Lampoon at that time. So, oh, that between that and the Onion, we were aiming somewhere in the middle of those. Onion is like a real hard joke headline, and Lampoon would be a more cerebral, interesting piece that had a funniness throughout it, and ours was somewhere in the middle and kind of messy, and none of us were trained in anything, so it was just fun. What was the kind of fun? What was funny back then? Uh, I remember a story. I've, I've looked back. Oh, you mean around the anti-daily? Yeah. Um, well, I remember just being very stressed about that I was the final editor and having to cut pieces. And so one guy was always writing these long pieces that were just, just horrible. They were not only unfunny, but they were awful and they haunt me still. <laughs> There's one about having sex with a dead person in a rowboat, and the details were so specific. So it was just a study in what necrophilia would be like, and you're like, yeah, I guess that's what it would be like. That's awful. That's a horrible thing. And I'm not laughing, and it's long. It's longer than our whole issue, and so it's definitely cut, and the guy would get so upset at me, and I was like, I, don't, I didn't want to be a comedy boss, but... I'd, I'd signed up for it, kind of. How, how were you a boss? I mean, you had to tell them, right? Yeah. So how did you have to present you present that? Well, I remember the most fun thing. I didn't realize it, but we were doing like a uh, Saturday Night Live table read, basically. We'd all uh, get a case of beer and sit around. Everyone would read two or three articles, and there were like ten of us. And so that was a real fun part. But then, yeah, the next day, I'd, I'd probably email. Email had just been invented. <laughs> Uh, the list of what was in and uh, I just would see a lot of the guys were on the rowing team with me and I'd see them at practice and be like what about the necrophilia is that not going and I'd say things that now producers say to me at SNL like maybe down the road I think maybe down the road that we might have a good spot for that having sex with a dead body piece that's so freaking long (laughs) and then just never do it so you end up here in Chicago uh, because of Chris Farley Mm-hmm. And sign up at Second City, and you go to Second City first and take level A? Yeah, my sister Megan and I, who still does uh, improv and teaches it and everything, um, uh, signed up and went together to our first level A uh, class at you know St. Alphonsus and uh, had a, a teacher named Tom Green. Yes, I remember Tom. Yes. And, uh, and then level B was Pam Clear, and after B, I stopped. Megan continued and went through. Um, I stopped and went and took I.O. classes. And you said at the I.O. that like T.J. Jagodowski was a, you, was a big influence yes. to you. What did you learn from him? I mean a ton and I just improvised him, with him for 24 hours straight so I feel like uh, and, and he's been one of my best friends for, for 10 years or more so I've learned so much but what would, what would I summarize one of them as? I think there was a sensibility thing that came from all the people that were more under TJ's guidance that was maybe to um, uh, more experienced people of Martin DeMott, like I didn't have him, but that energy um, as opposed to maybe Del Close. And what I'm comparing is um, uh, coming down hard like a football coach versus nurturing and supporting. And that vibe was how TJ taught. And then there's other people who... um, are good friends of mine, but they just lay into their teams, and their teams love it. And I, I hated that and didn't like having it happen. I like being shamed after a bad scene. Um, and I like the idea that there's potential in everyone and every idea and that kind of thing. And I need that more. And um, and TJ's all about that, sort of, that vibe. And then you get on a team called The Reckoning. Yeah. And you guys become a house team. You become a legendary uh, house team. and. You're, you're performing regularly, but there's these Tuesday night slots that you're doing where it's total experimental. Uh, one week you guys will get up and do stand-up. The next week you'll get up and you'll do a French farce. And you, you'll do a script from a movie or a TV show. And, and when I talk to people from the Reckoning, they they this is they they feel they look back at this so fondly. Yeah. What was it about that that was so important for you guys to do that? I think the Tuesday nights were so scary each week. They brought us back to the original rush we'd gotten from just doing a Herald in front of 20 people on a Tuesday night or downstairs or whatever. And um, uh, and exciting and, and feeling like 
the way we would talk before and after the show is we were all dreaming, you know, that you don't always do after a Herald. You're like, that was really fun. Let's uh, talk about something else. <laughs> and uh, we were like, that this could become a play that we could try to get at Victory Gardens, and that could we could shoot that, and we should make that a film. And it was just like this excitement and dreaming, and it's so cool um, that you brought that up because we just started, we do a Thursday night show every week in LA at IO West, and we just started, we're like, let's make this more like the Tuesdays now. We, we know we can go do a medium fun half hour of improv anytime, but let's start um, making it more experimental and stuff. So the two weeks ago I missed it, but they did a bat. Um, a which, blind. Blind Harold, so in the pitch black, they said, they said they didn't explain it real well to the audience, and people were annoyed and saying, turn on the lights. But but you would love something like that, Yeah, right? I love it. You love the uncomfortable. Yes. What is it about that? I don't know. I think maybe it's somehow trying to bottle what I feel in life all the time. Is uncomfortable? Uh, yeah, social. Do you feel uncom socially uncomfortable? Yeah. Okay. Not not too bad with you right now, because oh, uh, I know you. But uh -huh. if it, if I didn't know you, or and certainly, the hardest thing is just navigating through a party, mm -hmm. and um, something about um, having that in a contained way. I suppose I don't like this analogy already, but like cutting to control pain or something. Right. I'm not a cutter. I have nothing but sympathy for it. Now I'm gonna get done. The other path, but it's something about containing a controlled environment for social awkwardness that is really fun to me. Um, the social awkwardness, of course, you know, I, I'm, I love that because yeah. I have that too. Mm -hmm. um, how did you navigate that at Saturday Night Live? Because there's some politics there. You you can't be hiding in your office all the time. Right. How did you be? How are you able to 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 navigate that in 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 your career? Well, probably not very well. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think there's an aspect where I'm really not very good at selling ideas still, and that, and I think part of it is that sort of social awkwardness, as opposed to being like a guy that comes in and is like, "You're gonna love this. This is great." So what we're gonna do, and they're getting the host excited about their idea, and they're getting the head writers excited. But luckily, you can also do pretty well if you just put your head down and churn out more good stuff than bad. And then slowly developing good friendships, like Seth Meyers became a close friend of mine. Um, uh, Eric Kenward, who I was mentioning from Harvard, is actually a producer uh, now, so he's overseeing, I'm, you know, have a sort of friendship with Lorne, and that makes it so I can say, hey, I'm not gonna sell this thing to you in a, a really suave way, but um, know, you know me and you know that this type of thing might work, right? And and they'll say, yeah, we'll give it a little what try. Is, what is the secret to be comfortable around Lauren? <laughs> uh, I think I think something was broken, some tension, when I first teased him about something. Which Do you want to share that? Well, it'd be, if I can remember, it would be like five years ago or something, and it probably, like I used to, at the after party, used to try to pick up his bill and, and I'd say, you know, I, are you sure? Like, are you doing okay and everything? Right. This show is, it's a late night show. You know, it's not prime time. Um, and, uh, of course, he's got billions of dollars. Yeah, yeah, he's doing quite well, I think. I don't know the numbers, but right. pretty well. Uh, but um, that type of thing. And to have him really genuinely laugh. Like I, and then I realized from moments like that that he used to be, it used to be him and his buddies, you know? And then the cast and the writers keep getting more distant from him and they're it, younger and he's getting older yeah and their backgrounds and stuff he he was hanging out with those guys and when they were before they were famous and everything and um so you're like i think there's some element that i he has plenty of friends and and everything not like a sympathy thing more just like a realization that like this this can be a fun thing for him if it's the right time you know do it when he's in focus mode so um, and then uh, you, you, you get on Saturday Night Live. Uh, do we want to, I want to talk about Second City. I don't uh -huh. want to jump to that. Um, this, this awkward stuff, this uncomfortable stuff is, is in your comedy. And a, 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 
sketch that you did at, at Second City was this fake um, engagement, which which I just love. Uh -huh. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, I think it somehow came out of the idea came out of the fact that especially my castmate Joe Canelli was obsessed with the fact that um, Shelley and I, Shelley Gossman and I were also in the cast had dated years before, five years before we'd broken up or something before getting main stage together. And he was like, oh my God, are you guys gonna kiss? Just his, Joe is a very mature and intelligent man and <laughs> he actually is intelligent. I'm sure he only brought it up a couple times. Yeah, uh, yeah. just exhaustingly working at us. And um, so I think there was something where it was like, let's go right at this and just um, address, do a sketch that's awkward about the fact that we used to date, even though we had zero awkwardness. We were best friends and have been ever since, um, like a year after we broke up, probably. And um, so, yeah, I would, I, it was also a nice uh, jab at what I hate in Second City scenes, which was like just the most awful political mashed into Old West, you know, a sort of sketch that can happen here when Second City's not at its best. And that we break out of and do an actual proposal, I mean fake, actual, and then uh, uh, it falls apart because Shelley's like, no, that was the other part of it that I liked is you never see on the Jumbotron's proposals a no. <laughs> I've always wanted to see that and I've heard of them that the person says yes and when the camera's off they're like, no, what are you doing? We don't, right. we're not, And but Shelley does it right away and she's such a good actor that the, is, that the audience would lose their mind and be like, what is happening? This girl just said no. Uh, and then we'd play with that and, she, and use a couple real details. And she'd say, we broke up five years ago. You can't just propose out of nowhere. And her now husband came to see the show and her uh, with her dad one night. And he knew, Ben knew about the bid. And you know he's a very funny guy who was, I'm sure, helping steer it. Nowadays, we always take our comedy to Ben and he's like, gives notes on everything and uh but her dad Dennis didn't know about it and he was like oh no O'Brien thinks he's gonna propose right I don't know if he knows about this boyfriend <laughs> and thought it was all really happening and so we didn't mean to trick Dennis but it, it worked out but the thing is about your your comedy it, 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 your voice is very distinctive how long did it take you to, to find your voice I mean, I think probably it's still ongoing, but the nine years in Chicago were a big part of that, and having T.J. Jagodowski directing me all the time. He directed two or three solo shows of mine and two or three um, two-man shows I did with Peter Gross called Misled, and those were all T.J., and he'd, say, he'd be always saying um, stuff like, now we're really asking a lot of the audience here. We, you're tricking them in this way, and like, let's make sure to not abuse them and, and reward them here. And you know, and, and thinking about because I love awkwardness. We're we're saying we both love that, and and you know, also there's another line that you can go flying by where you're just just messing with an audience that came out of their houses and paid money to see you, and you just lie to them a bunch and then say get out of here. And it's got to not cross that line too much. The other thing that I find in, in you know, uh, the stuff that you've done on Saturday Night Live or, or, or this, this sketch, a fake uh, engagement, you are the butt of the joke, in a way. Yeah. Why is that important for this, this awkward style of comedy to work? Yeah, because then I think that the audience gets to enjoy it. They're, they've been messed with, but they're not the butt of it. And, uh, and maybe, you know, in breaking down... Uh, laughter and stuff like I've seen some very dry documentaries about and stuff there is some sort of they're getting to enjoy watching you suffer in a way that they've felt other times but they're now happily not having it happen to them and they're like look that guy the laugh on slipping on a banana peel is supposed to be that that you're laughing because you're joyous that it's not happening to you which is a real weird thing to me but that might be part of why the audience and why I make myself the butt of it and the audiences tend to like that more. So in 2005 is your first time you auditioned for Saturday Night Live. Four years later, 2009, they come calling back to Chicago again. Yeah. And this time you're on the main stage, yeah. right? 
And this time you also have a, a one-person show at, back at ETC. That's right. All right. How important was that to have that, that, that one-man show back there as well, of getting hired on Saturday Night Live? It was 100% because of that that I got hired. I mean, I had the night off from main stage and did a showcase at I.O. That really is why they flew me out. They came to the main stage. So they saw me two nights in a row, uh, Lauren and, and people, and they came to the main stage as well, and it got the impression that they were like, that's fine, but, uh, but we're bringing them out because the two solo things that were from my one-man show. And I would even... Two pieces that they liked? Yeah, that I'd done in an I.O. Um, showcase. showcase. And uh, that solo show was the whole reason I got, I've gotten anything. I mean, it started the whole thing going, and it was interesting because I was um, kind of getting ready to be done with Chicago. I was, I'd been here seven years, and Second City had never touched me, and I was known as a funny guy at I.O., but I just had that, held that title for long enough years that I was like, okay, it's time to, I want to scare myself, try a new thing. So I was getting ready to move to LA and I was like, I should put together all my favorite solo pieces. So I have a 45 minute show to show Hollywood. I didn't know what, who or uh, where I would be showing it. But, uh, so I just put that show up at upstairs at IO and, uh, tweaked a little bit, took this sketch out, put a different one in and, but it led very quickly to, uh, getting that show moved to ETC, Andy Myra saw it and said, I want him to be on my tour co. I directed a tour co a little bit. And um, uh, Andrew Alexander and Mick saw it and said, put him on main stage. Right Which now. I just want people to know is like unheard of. You know, like yeah. people don't usually say that. Yeah. And it was all that solo show and not my work in Red Co or, or main stage that then Saturday Night Live. So that all. I put that thing together and was writing for Saturday Night Live like 14 months later when I had felt like nothing was happening for me month to month for years. A very gradual move to being on The Reckoning and some cool things, but it was just like bam, bam, bam. As soon as I blocked everything out, it was like, let me just make the best little showcase that shows my humor to show in LA. And it was a funny, like I got everything I'd been shooting for earlier when I focused in. And you're not somebody who, who sets goals. You're not saying, oh, you know, I'm going to make main stage, and then no. two years from now I'm going to make Saturday Night Live. How do you just focus in on your work? Because that... Yeah, I, I think it was... I, in a way, gave up on all those. I'd already been flown out to SNL once, and I'd already auditioned for Tourco four or five times, and I just was like, well, maybe I can just make weird TV shows. And... Um, and I don't know what that means or how to make those. So let me just let me just show what I think is the funniest eight or so pieces that I've done, and then hopefully some producer or director will be like, here, put them here. And it just so happens that the SNL and Second City producers and directors were the ones that grabbed me from that. But you also have had a great work ethic, and I, we talked before about Jed Evelis saying. I want to be like Pat O'Brien because, you know, between doing a show at night and in the afternoon and the day, Pat O'Brien is writing sketches and sketches and sketches. It, was yeah. that true when you were here in Chicago? Yeah, that was true. I had a goal that I never came close to, but I what was that goal? wanted to write a sketch a day <laughs> forever. <laughs> forever? Yeah, okay. that was when I started uh, Second City class and got into the idea of sketch comedy. and But I wrote like... 12 in the first 12 days and they're pretty bad uh, and then uh, and then uh, it trailed off but I would set that type of thing for myself and I still will say I have to come up with uh, I'll like put my iPod on shuffle and I'll say e each song I have that long and I should use the song's inspiration to come up with an SNL video idea and I, if I do 10 of them I'll go, I get to go to bed. <laughs> and, and, and I remember too, at one time in Chicago, you stopped teaching because you wanted to focus on writing. Yeah. Yeah. And w w how important was that for you? Well, I think the balance is important because the teaching I sometimes miss now. I feel like when I'm improvising, I forget nowadays what I used to have in my head all the time that I'd, I'd be like, remember, just focus on the last thing the person 
across from you saying and and ten other tricks of, around that that are um, uh, harder to bring up because I'm not saying them for three hours a week to students and um, so I think it's great to do that but then when it was all that that led to more of it you know once you're known as a teacher or director in Chicago you're a little bit in demand in a great way and I was making a living off it too um, in $30 chunks or whatever the coaching fees. But you had to take a pay cut to say, hey, I'm not going to teach anymore, yeah. is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I just was like, well, uh, if I, unless I say I'm stepping away from that, I'm just only going to be doing that. And when you did that, did that catapult you into writing more up for your solo stuff, into being hired by Second City? I guess so, yeah. It did, because it did the first thing you said. It did have me focus more on... Uh, solo show and the two-man show with, with Peter Gross. And then the other thing I don't think people are aware of is when you were with The Reckoning, a lot of people that we've had on, they always say, you know, they always give you a lot of credit for pushing them in a very supportive way. I think it might have been Holly one night, Holly Laurent. Do you know what I'm going to say? Yeah, I think so. Can you share that story? Well, I can share what Holly tells. Okay. I don't, I don't okay. remember the... I know the sentiment and I remember the basic thing, but... It was somehow that we all had to do a five-minute stand-up act that week at the Reckoning Upstairs Tuesday show, and she said, I've had you know a crazy or, or bad day or two. I'm not going to do it tonight. And I remember when I stand by this, I was like, you have to. It doesn't have to be good. That's the nice part. All of ours are bad, but if you don't, then I might not next week because I don't want to tonight, and I kind of don't want to next week, and we're all going to start doing this, and gave what I hope is a polite nudge. Sometimes in her story of it, I'm a little harsher or something, but uh, but it more just like, yeah, that's what this is. This is all of us just being like, I don't know, this isn't great. I, we've got other stuff on our minds. We're not professional stand-up comedians, and um, my memory of it was they always went pretty well, so I think the audience understood. Why was it important for her to get Holly to do it? I think, I think it just would have opened the floodgates of all of us getting to bail on a lot of different things. And I think that's pretty scary for an improv team to know that if you're tired, you don't have to. <laughs> that's, yeah, you can't have it. And so then you get hired in 2009 to be a writer and not a performer. How did you feel about that? Was there a little disappointment? A little, I mean, very little. I was thrilled and overwhelmed and, and scared but uh what was the overwhelm and scared part uh moving to new york i'd only been there twice for the auditions i think oh a third time to uh, audition for aspen and uh, aspen comedy festival yeah that peter gross and i went to and uh, in the show uh, tj directed in 2007 and uh um just what was supposed to be this cutthroat place that you read about in the books and Will I be able to come up with ideas uh, often enough? And it wasn't as packed with Chicago people as it is has been for the last five years. It, um, my office mate turned out now to be one of my best friends, Jason Sudeikis. I met a couple times, not much. I've met Seth Meyers once or twice. I knew John Lutz a little bit better, um, but didn't go in with a good friends. Um, not a ton of confidence that I could turn out. Uh, couple good sketches every week and and hadn't been watching the show it was intimidating so um there's a part of me that was like oh I, I wish I was performing but more than anything I was like I just hope I can do this at all and then you you write on the show and then several years later yeah they they give you a featured player yeah and what was that like when they tell you that uh it was uh, really, really great. Uh, when I first got hired, Seth said on the phone, Seth Myers makes the call, and I was going up to uh, Northwestern Hospital to meet my newly born nephew, my sister Aaron's kid. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I remember that call really distinctly, but he also said, don't think of this as a gateway to the cast. Embrace that you're a writer and you're going to always be an SNL writer and or fired. He didn't say that, but because um, I think they see people from Chicago sometimes come in and they're really like 
wishing they were actually in the cast. Well, if you look at some people have done that, Tina Fey, yeah. Jason Sudeikis, Sudeikis yeah. started as a writer, so it would be pretty natural to expect that. Yes, and some Groundlings friends of mine have come in as, uh, we hate the expression just a writer, but meaning as opposed to writing and performing like they used to, and it bothers some people and they're not happy at the job. And so it was good advice and I did find a real happiness in being proud to be a writer and uh, who used to perform more and doesn't anymore. And I found, and he he got a kick out of calling me when I got put in the cast and he was like, I told you not to do that. Uh, but he was really happy. And um, the call itself was like a voicemail from an assistant saying, Lauren wants to talk to you and in the summer and uh, I had a feeling about it, and um, but wasn't sure, and I called him back. And now, are you the type of person who, like, in between that, do you call people, or do you just sit with that? Just I'm gonna, it's I'm, it's just me in my secret. Yeah, I, okay. it was that. Okay. And then I called him, and he said, "I'm gonna put you in the cast. I know you're ambivalent about this." So he was doing bits right away because he knows I, I would be thrilled and I wanted it for a long time and would bring it up to him sometimes. And um, uh. He said, I know you'll hit the ground running and uh, let's do it. And uh, so it was like a 30 second call. And then, uh, yeah, then just a bunch of calls. I was dating uh, Cecily Strong from Chicago at the time. And I think I just texted her the word cast. And uh, it was very emotional. The, and the real emotion weirdly hit me after the first show. I, I had a sketch in, it was Tina Fey. And, uh, at the end of the episode, I, I got my sketch on the air, and I was a, a Tim Robinson idea, speaking of, we were talking about him before, and um, a sketch writing genius, and this is a great one. It's the first used car commercial ever was the idea, and um, uh, so he's like trying out all these terms that have become cliche and used car commercials, and she was my wife, and he's saying, I these car sales are so such good deals, I, I'm crazy, you know, like they always are in straight jackets and stuff, and she was his actually crazy wife who was really like uh, drowning kids in the river type old-timey crazy lady, and uh, uh, got done with the sketch and did good nights and then went up to um, Cecily's office and was sitting with Cecily and Tim and just broke down crying because I was like, oh my god, that just, I was just on that show that I saw when I was little, and it hadn't, it wasn't really real until then, it was still always just like, Make sure to look this way, then look that way. Stand on this tape, remember to do this. Oh, we changed this, and your brain is in that mode. And then it took a minute, and then uh, I had this big emotional... Rush. Like tears of joy. Yeah, and just overwhelmed, and, and yeah. And you, it was also a high point because Tina did your sketch, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because as, as, as I went through and did some research, it's very hard not to find an article, an interview with you, not to look back on Chicago and feel this, this great uh, fondness. Or talking, you were, there was uh, something where, T, uh, where Amy did a uh, Seven Minutes in Heaven and you just, it did, never made it on, but you just, you wanted to connect with her about her time in Chicago. Yes. Yeah, it's the, it's the formative um, years of my entertainment career, but of my life, really. That was more college-y than college to me. Um, because I don't use, you know, the major and stuff that I, well, I kind of do now, well, but it was film. film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but the things I'm thinking all day is I'm trying to create things. And, and the moment where improv um, as a way to live your life sank in, like three or four years into Chicago and all these sorts of things you think about and talk about and that the world can work this way and your life can be this way is, is from my Chicago time. It was like a, a going to a Buddhist monastery for nine years and you'd obviously every day of your life be affected by that time. Um, and then you're a feature player. How does that year go? That year uh, was pretty fun. And I pretty much had a belief the whole time that I would get a couple years. So there wasn't, as the shows were counting down, there wasn't this like, oh, I've, I've had a medium year, and that's uh, disconcerting. It was lightly, I was lightly frustrated. What were you frustrated about? The most frustrating thing was that 
I knew sketches with me as the main weird, awkward character weren't going to be getting on a lot the first year. I pictured like Forte or or something like that that maybe take a couple of years for the mainstream nature of the audience to uh, uh, warm up to it. And so I was fine with that, that I only got a handful on where I was a, a weird character. But, uh, and Lauren said this to me, he's like, the videos you're making and um, uh, weekend update characters will probably be where you shine. And uh, the videos were fine. I got like four or five weird videos, usually writing with Tim on the first year. And weekend update, I tried a character at the table, things for my solo show and stuff. I was like, this is why I'm here. You guys basically brought me because of this solo show and wasn't quite finding the best way to adapt them, but also they were going okay and they tried zero. I read like 21 weekend update. I could get mad thinking about it, even though it doesn't matter now, but... Uh, they yeah. tried 20 times in at the table and they put zero of them up at the 8 o'clock Saturday dress audience so for people to know there's a dress rehearsal right. and stuff will get cut yep. in the dress, so it didn't even make it to dress yeah n no, nothing from my solo shows or anything and I again I don't know that I adapted them the best but I don't think Weekend Update um, people who make the final decisions about that were on the same page as Lauren that like this might be this guy's way in his first couple years so even if he's just close like help him get it and get it out in front of an audience and let him be with the live audience. He's going to be more comfortable there. There was one time I, near the very end I started talking to him about that. I was like, you guys, I'm really, really, my number one priority is to try to get a couple characters and we can update. And they were like, okay. And they like gave me one and they, that did go to dress, but it was like the least me thing ever. I was a guy in Bieber's entourage and it's referencing a lot of words that have the word Bieber in them believer and this shit I don't care right, about. Right, you, right. And do, you probably had nothing to do with writing it either. No, okay. I, I looked over it. I mean, they said, you know, come brainstorm with us. And I was like, you know, maybe here's a joke or something. But none of, it wasn't coming from my gut. And I think what Lauren was saying when he was like, uh, so it was cut after dress. But I think what he was saying when he was like, you could do those and the videos is that you're, you have a unique voice that might not right away work in the live sketch sketches. And so this wasn't my unique voice to do Bieber jokes. And how do you, the thing I love about you is you're very positive, you're very focused, and maybe I'm totally wrong. You don't seem to get jealous of other people's career like I do. You don't seem to get down. How, how, how did you deal with that, that, that frustration? Um, like of being moved out of the cast and stuff? Yeah. And, and throughout the, I think, I think, well, I struggled with being jealous of other people. It's mm -hmm. really hard to not then look at who's getting to stay in the cast and who are the new hires and everything. And I think one of the things I focus on was them as people as opposed to performers because I really love the other cast members as humans and um, uh, like Pete Davidson coming in after me. I really love him. He's like a genuinely sweet, good person that if you think, am I mad at Pete? You're like, no, he's a great guy. And, and none of these people are the reason you're not doing it really I mean they're, they're, no one would ever say you want me to be on second stage, main stage I don't think so there's a guy that's been working a little harder a little longer his name is Paul Grandi like what if I had said that like, right. I refuse and I in fact insist you take my spot and give it to Paul like the world doesn't work that way right. and um, so um, yeah just trying to stay focused and I, as often as I can, I try to take all, all that frustration, negative energy, and pour it into a show. I say, well, I'm going to kick everyone's butt with this new idea, or new video, or new sketch. And just trying to do that was uh, uh, where I tried to channel it. But it was hard because I stayed in the building as a writer. And the outlet, outlet of doing five videos last year really helped. But um, it was like, you're fired, but you have to come into work every day. <laughs> But thing. those videos, to me, and we talked about this before, versus any sketch you had been in to that point, those videos are purely your voice. Nobody's interrupting it. You're not trying to round a hole in the square peg. Would right. you agree to that? Yeah. I feel really, really lucky to get those and to get full, pretty much full artistic uh, say in them. The producers will give notes, Lauren will give notes at the, when they're played in front of the 8 o'clock audience. 
but they're usually like, I feel like it should be shorter. I feel like you have two endings or something. They don't say like, it's, this is too weird or something like that. Uh, so that's amazing. I mean, it's a amazing mainstream show that I'm getting to do weirder videos on. Why do you think that your sensibility plays out better in a short film than it does in a sketch? I don't know. I think maybe because it's less uh, big characters and hard jokes than, um, and so the overall vibe and uncomfortableness and you can be manipulating through music and longer takes here and shorter ones here and that as opposed to like Farley, like we were talking about, is just so exuberant right away and so so much bigger than me in his performing style that uh, that might read to a live audience right away and um, and uh, in the videos I can um, manipulate the smallness of it maybe. What do you, I mean today everybody everybody who's in improv and comedy they want to do you know they want to do either something on the internet or they want to do a web series how do you approach your short films differently than when you're writing a sketch? Um, well, I think, uh, for one thing, I think you have to justify why it's a short film and not a live sketch, because there's times where if you're like, it's just four people sitting around at a table at a restaurant, you're like, well, this, this should be a live sketch. But if there's some sort of like dream-like element, supernatural element, more than one location, then it's justified of why they use part of their budget to shoot it and uh, edit it and make it a film. So I think I start to think more like what are crazier things that could happen or more interesting things that could happen as opposed to just like what's a really funny thing that could happen on a date in one location, a live sketch type thing. What is the thing you're most proud of that you've done on Saturday Night Live? Um, probably either uh, Sad Bounce, which was a thing I wrote in my second year um, about a guy who's depressed but still has to go out and be one of those um, dressed up like Mickey Mouse type guys in Times Square, or Jay-Z Story, which was a biopic about Jay-Z last year that I did and um, Sudeikis came back for. And I just liked, I really loved the look of it too and shooting it actually uh, Marcy Projects and the black and white and the director's Matt Nas just made that. I'm really proud of how that looks and the, that that weird joke got on. What weird joke? That I'm Jay-Z. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that, I, that they would just in some casting mishap make an awkward white dude be uh, one of the most iconically cool guys ever. And then how did you, was it a mutual thing? How did you decide? Another respect I have for you is if you don't enjoy something, you seem to want it. Was that the case with Saturday Night Live moving on? Was it? Yes. Well, I, I thought I'm loving the, doing the videos, but I lost my passion for the live show, partly because of enough years of doing it and partly because I had that taste of that live sketch night with Tina and the tears afterward and, and when that rush was gone I was like it's an empty thing writing live sketches for these hosts and cast when I'm not I used to be in it and um, said that to Lauren and I, I was like I, I don't even feel like I need to break up with his company Broadway Video I'm, I would be happy to try to sell a TV show or something with you guys and I'd really love to keep doing the videos but I'd love to focus more that way than um, on the live sketch show still and so that would mean moving to LA, and and uh, he he approved that. Um, and now you've 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 written uh, you've recorded you just released a tasty radio, yeah, which is a comedy album, yeah. which is very interesting because you don't even like to listen to your own voice. <laughs> no. <laughs> so how did you come up with this idea? Well, I think it was just uh, so many leftover sketches, and it's so expensive and so hard to make videos, as you know you're saying a lot of the listeners are always trying to make videos and you know that it's just really hard to make them look good and everything. It's very lucky that I get to do that in the SNL budget. And I was like, well, we could record them like these Nichols and May albums I'm obsessed with. I grew up with the Adam Sandler ones, but when I was in Chicago, I found out about Nichols and May and all those types of albums. And I'm like, those are 
so funny and don't need the visuals and it's got to be super cheap to record that and um, the popularity of podcasts and uh, all that I was like I think there's like a radio listening audience now that are in in their cars and and um, on their phones that will will maybe listen to this and then having so many funny friends around from using Chicago friends and not then my new SNL friends I was like I also have an amazing cast around me that I can I can make do the various voices and then it was hell listening to my voice for two whole summers as we edited are you happy with how it turned out yeah I'm really happy with it I we to be honest we recorded it in 2011 and 12 and the things were written even before around that so some things I'm like um, my sense of humor has moved on from that but the production and execution of it I'm so happy with I think this guy Steve Rossiter who mixed mastered edited it made it sound and feel really polished and some of the performances and, and lines that friends came and wrote and, and did make me laugh so hard still that I really, really love it. Um, we've got to wrap this up. Sure. Thank you so much. Thank this you, has just Jimmy. been so much. It's, are you uncomfortable? Uh, no. <laughs> Any part of this make you uncomfortable? No. Are you, you serious? I'm very serious. Okay. You're, and I, I knew I wouldn't be because I've listened to you do NPR in, interviews and everything, uh-huh. and you're such a... Uh, you're a calming presence. So thank oh, you. that's good to know. Because yeah. I've wanted to do this for a long time, and you, you know, your schedule's been huge. You've been hugely busy, and I'm, I'm yeah. glad that you took time out to do this. Because yeah, absolutely. Know. Yeah, we're old castmates. Yes, with uh, Noah and Bill Bailey. Yes, we did a show, Pent. Yeah, and, right. and and now there's an example where you you decided you weren't you didn't want to do it anymore. That show. Yeah. I thought we. I thought Sharna took us off the schedule. <laughs> she did. We got cut, man. She did. Okay. <laughs> Let's end what, on a who, negative Sharna note. Why? Why? Why am I always the last? No. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was a great cast because it was yeah. you, Noah, TJ, right, Bill Baylor, with Jordan. Was Jordan? No, Jordan was no did, Dan Bacadol. No, had you replaced Dan? I think he sat in, and I think. Katie Nonson played with Katie us. Katie Nonson, yeah, yeah. It was it was so much fun. We had a great time rehearsing. Yeah, I liked rehearsing more than the shows. Yeah, me too. Why why is that? Well, one thing it was I think it was like a Friday eight o'clock audience and so it was um, uh, not as student student y audience. It right. was a little more off the street, but it felt like we all wanted to play and be weird and right. do our you know, we weren't trying to do quick tags and punchy improv. Uh, but yeah, in the in the rehearsals, we would just go for these long, weird journeys, and I remember really loving them. Yeah, I'm glad you cleared that up because I I, I felt abandoned. I thought Pat <laughs> doesn't want to do the show anymore. Oh no, okay. I mean I don't know if there was a couple weeks where I couldn't do it right near the end, but I was I wouldn't have. See, the good thing about you is like you that. don't take things personally. Like I take things personally. Yeah. Yeah. So I just I, I'm I'm making amends. I'm uh, that I was holding on to that, and I'm letting I'm letting We're that clear, go. Clearing it up. Yeah, yeah. No, we we weren't packing the house Fridays at eight enough, so we got cut. Right. Brutal business. And what did you learn by that? Because I learned a lot by getting cut. Because I I was teaching there. You certainly a reckoning, and you were teaching you know, this yeah. respect. And now all the students are bitching about being cut from a team. Now you experienced it. Yeah. What did you learn from that? Well, I mean, I feel like we all just keep having those happen. And like every six months or so, I, I get the equivalent of some kind, whether it's taken out of the SNL cast or uh, try to sell this thing in L.A. and can't do it and stuff like that. And you, you just are have to, like we were talking about, channel it into a positive um New new project. I'm gonna make this one even better. This one's uncuttable. This group of people is can't be cut. We're gonna beat the system. The other thing I want to say to you: Do you realize that you, how much of a leader you are? Do you see that at all? Like, uh, at I'm times. taking for the reckoning, and I, I think even your the, the cast of the the main stage show that you did. Yeah, I think at times I w- I've had that uh, fallen into that role, and. Um, liked it. I, I don't like anything that's kind of administrative sort of thing, and uh, but I do uh, happen upon that. I'm the youngest of four, so it's not natural to me, but when it happens... But, I, but you, you know that there, there's people that look up to you, right? Sure. Okay. Yeah. And how does an un, someone who's uncomfortable, <laughs> generally, how do they deal with that? Well, I'm, I'm confident in the comedy tenants that I got from Chicago. And I can lean on that, and that, and I'm 
at this point getting very confident in opinions about filmmaking and things like that. And so I can say it very confidently and I taught classes and everything and there was no social awkwardness because I'm like, this is right. Here's what it is. This is what Dell said. This is what TJ said. This is what Jimmy said. And, uh, and you can be confident in that way and then afterwards someone's like, do you want to uh, have a beer and joke around? And, and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to be okay at that. <laughs> but I think, did, did you study with me? Yeah. Okay. I took... Uh, the Artist Will Comedy? Or some... I, took, I was taking an elective. I, I, you, I think Shelly and you were in there. Yes. I definitely had a class with you, but the one I always wanted to take and it never worked out was you and Liz. Oh, you the individual assessment. Liz Allen. Later. Yeah. A couple of years yeah. later. But I'd, before that, I'd, I'd had one with you. Yeah. That Yeah, Shelly was in as well. That's yeah. right. Did you learn anything from me? I don't... I don't remember learning too much. Okay. I learned a ton. You were very a good teacher and very intense. Yeah. Much more I'm, I'm intimidating less, when you're than the interview. Vibe. Well, I might become less intense. I think I had to prove something, and I hopefully I've let that go. Oh, I think it was a good intensity. It was just really calling things like it was, and just saying like, no BS. Here's what's going on here. It wasn't what I was talking about before. We berate or embarrass people. It was right. just so direct mm -hmm. that really you were, it was great. All right, we we're wrapping this up for sure. This is, Great. you know, how many times have we wrapped yeah. this up? And, and I'm, um, we end the podcast the same way. What one piece of advice would you give to an improviser starting out today? Um, I would say to uh, try to get as zen as you can about it and focus on that day's improv task as opposed to your life goals, your year goals, jobs that you think you could have, other people have, uh, the eventual place it's going, and block all that out and say, I've got three o'clock rehearsal today, or seven o'clock show, or whatever, and that's what I'm excited about, that's what I'm nervous about, that's what I'm focused on, whatever it is, and block out where, you, where this is supposed to take you. I think people sign up for improv because of where they're supposed to get from it and seem very focused on that sometimes. And whenever I'm in that place, it's bad improv and unhappy living. Thank you so much for doing this Thank podcast. You, I really appreciate it, Pat. Yeah, I love doing it. Thank you so much. Thank you. And there you have it. Another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can, and I want to thank our guest, Mike O'Brien, and I loved that story about him making Lorne Michaels laugh. And don't forget to check out Mike O'Brien's new comedy sketch album called Tasty Radio, and you can pick it up on iTunes. And a big thank you to the Second City Training Center here in Chicago for treating us like such rock stars and setting us up with a room. And I want to thank uh, Jesse Swanson and Scott Elam and Anthony LeBlanc for making that happen. Huh? That's pretty good. Also, I want to thank my producer, Dan Schiffmacher. He's the one who makes me sound so slick and so professional because I'm not like that in real life. Um, and if you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning improv classes here in Chicago, the Artist Low Comedy and our Improv Nerd blog, which will make you a better improviser and a better person, uh, and my books and T-shirts and all that stuff, go to jimmycorain.com. And follow us on social media. Uh, go to Improv Nerd, our Facebook page, and like us. And then uh, follow us on Twitter at improv underscore nerd. And then check out our wonderful, wonderful Improv Nerd YouTube channel. And that's Improv Nerd Podcast. You get to see live clips from the show. Also, I want to thank both my sponsors today, uh, and that is Im the Improv Aru Camping Retreat and also the 7th Annual Dallas Comedy Festival. And, of course, I can't forget you because this podcast would be nothing if you didn't listen to it. So thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior. Happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. 
<laughs> the crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, oh my God. he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. Oh, my God. 